you would, please join me in prayer. O great God of the universe, the one who is sovereignly in control and who created all things, Lord, we come to you today knowing that we have many among us that are suffering from various ailments right now, some chronic, some, Lord, that are in lots of pain. We also know that there are those among us that are struggling with anxiety. Maybe it's over a relationship with someone that they love dearly, or it's just in dealing with worldly matters right now. We also know, Lord, there are those who are dealing with bereavement. We particularly remember our dear sister Sue Carter as she deals with her father right now. And Lord, we also know that there are some of us that are just distracted by the things of the world. That, Lord, the allurement of what the world holds for us tends to make us think that it is all important. And so, Lord, we pray that in such matters that you would help us to be drawn attention to you, draw attention to your word. It teaches us that our greatest problem, our greatest need is to deal with our sin. And Lord, we pray that such a passage of scripture this morning that we are looking at would awaken our hearts to our great need and our great desire for Jesus Christ. And that through that, Christ might be magnified. Oh Lord, we pray that our salvation may be set and secure upon him alone. And we pray this according to his finished work. Amen. Now, I know it's been a couple of weeks, but when we were last in Genesis chapter 18, I told you that what we were looking at then was only part of the story. In that chapter, Abraham is approached by three men, two of which are described as angels here in chapter 19, verse 1, and the other as the angel of Yahweh who speaks to Abraham with the same authority as God. It is through this person that Sarah discovers she's going to have a son within the following year. But more than this, the angel reveals to Abraham his purpose for being on the earth. He and his companions are there to investigate the wickedness of Sodom, and he plans to bring judgment upon the entire city. Abraham tries to intervene for the city of his nephew Lot. And he bargains with the Lord that if at least 10 righteous people might be found among them, then God would spare the entire city. Now, as Abraham is having this conversation with the angel of the Lord, the two men who were sent into, two men, the other two men were sent into Sodom. And that's where we left this matter two weeks ago. And we're about to discover what they found. Now, let me recap just a couple of broad themes for you here. Number one, God knows all things. Psalm 139 is a perfect description of just how expansive is the Lord's knowledge of humans. There is no need for him to send emissaries to Sodom to see if they were wicked or not. The reader has already known Sodom and Gomorrah's reputation since chapter 13, verse 13. But God is demonstrating his righteousness to Abraham. He is acting upon the same principle in the law found in Deuteronomy 19.15. Let me read that to you. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. Abraham would know that God is being fair in his judgment. But the two men will not only act as witnesses, but they will also be the means by which God will rescue Lot and his family. And then number two, I said that we'd wait until this sermon to explain why Lot was spared. 
In our previous message, I said no one in the city was righteous, not even Lot, and I still stand by that declaration. The Lord was right to judge Sodom and Gomorrah as he did, to which, as I expected, I received multiple communications from church members asking, well, what about 2 Peter, where Peter refers to the righteous Lot? What do we do with that passage? Great questions. And on one hand, I am so pleased that you know your Bible so well, but on the other, I need to remind you that the Scriptures are very clear on this. Outside of the Lord Jesus, there is no human who is right with God. Romans 3 is very explicit. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Righteousness or right standing before the Lord must be given to us, or using the old word, imputed upon us. So how is it that Peter calls Lot righteous in his letter? Well, I want to hold you, ask you to hold on to that tension just a little bit more till the end of this message. I told you I was going to leave you on a cliffhanger. So if you haven't already, turn back in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 19. Again, this is found on page 13 of your pew Bible. The first thing we want to do here is contrast Abraham's hospitality with Lot's. Now, when the two angels arrive, they find Lot sitting at the city gate. Now, in ancient times, the city gate was where the elders of the city, what we might call the, the city council, met officially. They supervised the commerce coming into the city, and they took care of legal disputes. And Lot has moved from living near this city back in chapter 13, verse 12, to actually living inside of it to becoming a civic leader with whom the citizens were well acquainted. You can see that in verse 9. Lot's assimilation into Sodom is also demonstrated in that according to verse 14, his daughters are pledged to be married to some of the men in it. But something seems fishy from the outside when these visitors enter the town. Now, Lot does good because he, he bows down to him. But again, according to ancient hospitality practices here, if one was welcomed into the city, they might receive the protection of the town, even sleep in the city center if there wasn't an inn available. It was why one chose to camp inside the walls of a city rather than be exposed to the bandits outside of it. But Lot insists that these strangers come to his home. He, quote, pressed them strongly, which is an accurate translation rather than insist. And sadly, the, the ESV makes a poor translation choice in verse 3 with the word feast. The NIV in this case is a little more accurate with the word meal instead of feast. What Abraham did for these men back in chapter 18, verses 6 through 8, was a feast or a banquet. Remember, Abraham killed the fatted calf. He had Sarah knead leaven into flour and baked bread into cakes. He served milk and cheese to his guest and stood there and waited as they ate so that he might serve them. Lot just serves a meal and some unleavened bread here. But as night begins to fall, Lot's house is surrounded by the men of the city. Note the text is specific. It's all of the men, from the youngest to the oldest. They want Lot to bring out his visitors, according to verse 4, to, quote, know them. That is a Hebrew euphemism. These men want to rape Lot's guest. This was the height of the city's abominable behavior, that strangers would come into a city and the entire town would want to force them into homosexual intercourse. 
This is where we get our English term sodomy from. This would be despicable to any ancient reader of this text. But I want to be clear. Because of this particular story, modern readers read this and they associate homosexuality as the worst of sins. And sin it is. Paul says in Romans 1 that even before the law came into the world, people should have recognized that homosexual activity was unnatural. But remember, the big sin in Romans 1 was exchanging truth for a lie and worshiping the created things rather than the creator, seeking satisfaction in something other than God. Homosexual behavior is only one outcome of choosing our own way. I say this because I want to be clear to my fellow Christians. Homosexuality is a sin. Jude 7 is also very clear on this. But it is no worse a sin than gossip or lust or looking at pornography or having an unforgiving spirit or issuing murderous threats to the driver that cuts you off. So when we interact with people that struggle with same-sex attraction, we, we don't need to put them in an us-and-them category. We are all sinners that need the mercy and grace of God. And sadly, the church will, will welcome back in adulterers and racists and gossips and thieves back into the fold with grace, but we don't seem to afford them the same courtesy to those that struggle with same-sex attraction. Now, we should note, the citizens of Sodom and Gomorrah had other sin issues too. It wasn't just this one type of transgression that made them wicked. According to Jeremiah 23, the Sodomites also committed adultery. They told lies. They strengthened evildoers and refused to turn away from evil. To strengthen the evildoer means to grant power to and sanction those that oppress. Listen to what Ezekiel said about these people. As I live, declares the Lord God, your sister Sodom and her daughters have not done as you and your daughters have. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me. So I removed them when I saw it. In the first chapter of Isaiah, God accuses the Israelites of being like the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah to him, and that they offer lots of religious ritual before him, but their hearts are far from him. So let's recap that list. In addition to homosexuality and rape, these people indulged in adultery, lying, promoting and sanctioning, sanctioning evildoers, pride, gluttony, enjoying worldly comforts to the point of neglecting the poor and the needy and offering empty worship to God. My, my, my. That sounds like much of Western society, doesn't it? And if God did this to Sodom, what do you think he might do to us? Lot tries to intervene for his visitors. He even offers his virgin daughters to all of the men of the city, hoping that would somehow satiate their wickedness but it doesn't work. According to verse 9, their lust had grown to the point that they will now attack and violate Lot as well. And at this point, the angels get involved with a blast of light that paralyzes the citizens with blindness. Now, this is not the only place in Scripture where God blasts the darkness with light. 
Elisha calls God to stricken the Syrians with light in 2 Kings chapter 6, and he does so. And the murderous Saul is blinded by light in Acts chapter 9 prior to his conversion and becoming the apostle Paul. Light in the hands of the Lord is a very effective weapon. So this becomes the first instance of Lot being saved by the angels. Lot is saved from the citizens of Sodom. The second saving moment is at verse 12. The angels reveal their purpose to Lot. Yahweh has judged the wickedness of the Jordan Valley, which contains these two cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, and he will destroy them. They offer a gracious warning to Lot to get his family out, even his future son-in-laws out of the city. And Lot goes to warn his daughter's fiancés, and they laugh at him. They think Lot is jesting, which shows just how seriously they took their future father-in-law. They refuse to heed the warning, and they are doomed. Now take for a moment that, and imagine here that you're Lot. The men of the city just tried to attack you. You were saved by angels in a supernatural way. They warn you to get out of Dodge. What would you do? I would like to think that I would leave immediately. But we see in verse 15 that Lot dawdled until the following morning. The angels have to warn him a second time. But in verse 16, we are told that he lingered. Lot felt more secure in this wicked city than outside of it with God. And here comes saving grace number three. The angels grab Lot and his family forcibly by hand. And they do so, as the text says, because Yahweh was being merciful to them. If the Lord had not intervened through his servants, Lot would have been destroyed with the city. Now again, you were Lot. You're being spared from certain destruction. Do you think it would be a good time at that point to negotiate where you go or just run? Lot so wants the security and the comforts of people that he begs the angels to let him flee to Zoar, which means little or trifle, most likely meaning this was a small village. It was mentioned back in chapter 14, verse 2, and there it was called Bella. The angels relent, but tell him, do not stop, not even to look back, or you'll be swept away. The Lord is gracious upon Lot. His family makes it to Zoar, and that is precisely when the destruction begins. Yahweh rains fire down and sulfur down upon the valley, and not only, only little Zoar here is spared. And we learn of another casualty here in verse 26. Apparently, while fleeing, Lot's wife looked back, and she was turned into salt. She had only one means of escape with only one rule. Don't stop and look back. Yet she disobeyed, and she reaped the consequences. You might wonder, why salt? Well, according to Deuteronomy chapter 29, verses 22 through 26, she might not have been the only inhabitant of Sodom turned to salt. The whole ground was salted as a curse, indicating that the people themselves cursed the earth that they lived upon. A similar practice occurred in Judges chapter 9, verse 45. And both Psalm 107.34 and Jeremiah 17.6 refer to salted land as a curse. God not only destroyed the Jordan Valley, he intended no one to live within it for years to come as a sign of his wrath. 
And if you think the destruction of these cities and Lot's wife turning into a pillar of salt seems far-fetched, let me remind you that according to Luke chapter 17, Jesus believed that this story was factual. And I'm going to go with and believe the Lord Jesus' words every time. We've already looked at verses 27 and 28 last time. This was when Abraham discovered the results of God's investigation into Sodom. There was no one righteous living in it to spare the city. But it is the next verse that holds interest for us today. We see the reason that Lot and his daughters were spared. It was because of Lot's relationship with Abraham. God remembered Abraham and the promise that he made to bless those whom Abraham blessed. This is the second time that Abraham has saved Lot's life, the first being in chapter 14. Now hold on just a little bit longer to that tension, and we're going to get to 2 Peter chapter 2. But we have one more sad episode to see in Lot's life. In verse 30, Lot appears to have learned at least one lesson. After witnessing the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, he no longer wants to live in a city in the Jordan Valley, even if it's a small one. He and his daughters move into and live in a cave in the wilderness. Wow. Look at where Lot's choices have gotten him. Back in chapter 13, he had as many possessions as Abraham, so much so that they had to split off from one another. And Abraham even allowed him to have the most fertile area. Now he is homeless. And it would seem he cannot even offer a dowry for his daughters. And these girls become desperate. Both daughters do what is right in their own eyes. They plotted to get their father drunk and commit incest with him. In verse 8, Lot was going to use his daughters. Now they will use him. And verses 30 and 35 indicate that Lot was so inebriated he had no idea what he had done. But this speaks also to the contrast between Abraham and Lot. Whereas Abraham had been concerned to pass down the covenantal promise to his offspring, Lot was not concerned to teach the ways of Yahweh to his. The son of the first daughter becomes the progenitor of the Moabites, whose daughters were later seduced the men of Israel in Numbers 25. The son of the second daughter becomes the founder of the Ammonites, Both races will be considered cousins to Israel, and both will be thorns in the side of their cousins. Lot's life certainly didn't turn out like he thought. There are so many applications that we could take from this text, such as Lot could have been a blessing to the inhabitants of Sodom. After all, he had seen what the one true God had done through his uncle on multiple occasions, but it seems Lot was more interested in prestige and commerce than he was living righteously and promoting his God. We could also say the same righteous influence was missing from his family life. He didn't seem to impart to his daughters the the promises of God, that's for certain. Or we might look at the influence of worldliness upon his own life. Lot's wealth from chapter 13 caused him to gravitate closer and closer to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, and he didn't realize just how slowly his life of comfort and ease was immersing him into sin to the point that he tolerated anything. These are all lessons that we could take from his life. As I said earlier in in the blog that I wrote this week in 1 Corinthians 10, 6, in regards to these stories of sinful people in the Pentateuch, 
Now these things took places as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. But once again, I don't want to make as much about Lot as I do what God is doing in the story. This is the last time we're going to see Lot. He doesn't get a special burial scene like Abraham's other relatives. But the Abrahamic blessing of chapter 12, verse 3, still spread through Lot. In Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 6 and 19, the Lord restrains the Hebrews in their conquest before they reach Moab and Amnon. And God says that he gave that land to Lot's descendants as their allotted possession. So Yahweh even makes provision for the incestuous nations descending from Lot, which begs the question, why? Why would he do this? Now let's turn to 2 Peter and read our mysterious passage on the righteous Lot. 2 Peter chapter 2. This is found on page 1018 of your pew Bible. Now, this is not a sermon from Peter's second letter here. In fact, I know by quoting this passage, you will probably have more questions that you would like me to answer than we have time for. But it's going to help us to have a little bit of context here. Peter is warning his readers against false teachers in the church. A warning, in fact, that we still need today. And the apostle assures his readers that the judgment against these false teachers will be just as certain as it was against the sinners in Genesis. And this is the context here. So let's pick this up from verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought the flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Godly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for that righteous man lived among them day after day. He was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. So the point Peter is making is that God knows who the righteous are and who are the unrighteous. And he will save the righteous, but the unrighteous are doomed. God will judge the wicked, even those that might be found among us in the church. But according to verse 7 and 8, Lot is called righteous. And apparently Lot was sensitive to the unrighteousness surrounding him, but he allowed his heart to harden. And as we saw in Genesis, Lot also practiced unrighteousness. He was sinful. So how did he become righteous? 
We don't even have a moment like Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, where Abraham believed God's promise and it was reckoned to him or credited to him as righteousness. How did Lot become righteous? Well, here's my answer. It's the same way that it is for any one of us. The Lord declared Lot to be righteous. He chose Lot in the same way that he chooses anyone else through the atonement of his son, Jesus. I believe there was some point in Lot's life when he believed in the promise given to Abraham. We're not given that scene in Scripture, but we are given the results. Just like every one of us, Lot was not righteous. Outside of the Lord Jesus, no one is. But we can be declared righteous through what Christ has done. It is proof that it is not our faith that saves us. It is Jesus alone that saves us. And if we are declared righteous, then faith follows as fruit of that declaration. Now, it is a little nuanced, but we must remember our faith does not earn our justification before God. Only the merits of Jesus do that, which is why our faith in what Christ has done is a gift freely given to us as well. Paul said it best, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, so that no, it's not the results of work so that no one can boast. So let's take away the greatest application of this text. I think we all agree Lot was a pretty despicable man. But he was not outside the salvation of Jesus Christ. Christ Jesus can save the worst of sinners, of whom I'd be the first to confess I am the greatest. If he can save a man like Lot, he can save you. He can redeem you. So do you believe? Do you feel the Spirit's inward pull in your heart drawing you toward what Jesus did on the cross? If so, then you cast yourself upon Christ. You cling to Him and you believe. Now one last point before we leave Lot. And I think this just shows the beauty and the sovereignty of God. Perhaps you're thinking right now, You're saying to yourself, I have made a mess of my life. I have really screwed it up. There there is just no way the Lord can fix and redeem my mistakes. This incestuous act of Lot's oldest daughter was truly heinous. But even the worst of us can be redeemed. We don't even know Lot's daughter's names. But we know... Her son's name, one of them is Moab. And from Moab will come a young lady who will turn out to be one of the most blessed women on the earth. Her name is Ruth. She will marry an Israelite that migrated to her land in Moab, but that husband will die. And she will faithfully choose to follow her mother-in-law, Naomi, back to Judah. And there another Israelite man will fall in love with her and marry this widow. And she will give birth to a son named Obed, who will be the grandfather to King David, the nation of Israel's greatest king. But not only that, we read from 
this Moabite woman these words in Matthew chapter 1. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation of Babylon. And after the deportation of Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheatiel. Sheatiel, the father of Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud. And Abiud, the father of Eliakim. And Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Akim. Akim, the father of Eliud. Eliud, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Mothan. And Mothan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. God can do the greatest things through the worst of situations. Maybe you're going through a bad situation right now. Maybe today is the day that you get to see God do his greatest work in your worst situation. That today is the day that you turn to him. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, I don't think I'm divulging secrets. When just this past week, I had occasion to talk to three different people who were struggling with anxiety about their faith. And in the midst of it, Lord, you taught us through your word, through your scripture, that it is not about our faithfulness, It is about the faithfulness of you. And it is not about us having faith that keeps us saved as much as it is about what Christ Jesus did on the cross to save us, that it was permanent, that it is finished. And when our faith is in that, that is sufficient. And Lord, we pray that that you would continue to work in us to help manifest this faith and to continue to keep clinging to Christ because, Lord, that is the only thing that saves us, not our own faith. But, Lord, we pray that in our sanctification, you would give us cause to say, it's not me, it's not me, it's not me. It is only what Jesus has done. It is only what Christ has done on my behalf that I can be saved. Just like Lot. We may continue to blow it and mess up over and over and over again. But though we blow it, though we mess up our situations, you are still at work in us because of your faithfulness to us. So, Lord, let us cling to that this day. And, Lord, I pray for that friend that is out here right now listening to this message who is saying, I'm worse than Lot that you would help him to say that Christ is greater. He has always been greater. From all of eternity, Christ is greater. We pray this in his work alone. Amen.